Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to keep moving forward in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. It's been a rich study to this point, and I anticipate the same this morning as we come back to the living Word of God that will not pass away in Matthew chapter 9. There were a number of believers in the 17th century who had a man by the name of Richard Baxter as their pastor. And Richard Baxter is a familiar name to most pastors today who are at any level concerned and careful with the Word of God. Richard Baxter stands as an example of one who took the priority of shepherding and of caring for God's flock very, very seriously. In fact, Richard Baxter wrote his most famous work in the pastoral realm called The Reformed Pastor, um, simply speaking to a generation so long ago and yet so close to the pastoral generation today that had abdicated their shepherding responsibility, calling them to reformation. And The Reformed Pastor is one of the very few books that David and I both own and have read and reread um, on a consistent basis. David uh, is a much better reader than I am, a much better student than I am, and yet this book we share in common because it calls us to a careful understanding of what it is to be a pastor. The unique thing about Richard Baxter is from the earliest ages, he struggled with internal bleeding. He went through life with bleeding ulcers. And at that point, with very little medical technology available, there were very few things that they could do. And so for most of his life, he took leeches and cutting and other great primitive medical technology, um, which which had no effect on him physically. So for most of Richard Baxter's life, he thought he was about to die. And so Richard Baxter is famous for repeating several times in, in the 200-plus books and pamphlets that he produced during his pastoral ministry as saying that he preached as never sure to preach again and as a dying man to dying men. That was his motto. That was his understanding. Every time he stepped behind the sacred desk to deliver the word of God to God's people, he desired to do so in a way that did not presume that God would give him another opportunity to preach. And he did so with a mindset that he was a dying man talking to a bunch of dying people. It's insightful for us this morning because we stand in the very same situation as Richard Baxter. In fact, he had 76 years of life, the last 40 of which he didn't expect. God gave him a fruitful ministry, and yet that motto, that awareness that he had of the dying situation which he brought to the pulpit and which his congregation brought to the Lord's Day meeting, is the same one that we face today. I'm standing before you as someone who's dying. And you have come into this room as people who are dying. The effects of sin are across all people groups. And we are unaware and we often work very hard to distract ourselves from an awareness of death. That we are dying. And yet this morning... We gather together, and I trust with a passionate awareness that we may never again gather with God's people at Grace Church on a Lord's Day morning. This may be the last one. This may be the last one that I stand here and and preach for you. This may be the last time you sit there and hear the word of God preached. That brings us to the most critical question for all of our lives, and that is, what, what hope is there if we are born dying? If from the moment we come from the womb, the process has begun, our days are numbered, and the effects of sin will result in our death, and after our death, a judgment, what is the hope for us this morning, and what is the hope for anyone who is born into the human race? There is only one hope. In fact, in Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul is struggling with his life as a Christian who still battles with sin. One of the most comforting sections you could read in your New Testament in time of struggle with sin. 
There's Paul late in his life and he's struggling. He says, I'm doing what I don't want to do and what I don't want to do, I do. And we could all raise our hands and say, this is the testimony of our lives. Sometimes more, uh, we are more acutely aware of that than others. So Paul comes to the end of that section. He talks about the battle that he's having and he declares, almost throwing his hands up, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me? And that's the question that we all bring every single Lord's Day that we gather together. And every day that we gather in private worship, if we are in fact God's children, we throw our hands up and say, who will deliver me from this body of death? Ultimate death in the fact that I will at some point stop breathing unless the Lord returns. And even the death that is constantly around me of sin and its effects on my life, who will deliver me? And Paul does not just ask the question and walk away as if that's sufficient. He answers the question. And in verse 25, he says it is God who will deliver him through Jesus Christ. And so this morning, as we come to Matthew chapter, chapter 9, and we wrap up this section that we've been studying that have put the authority of Jesus on display in action, I bring this question to the text and I trust it will be a benefit for you to bring this question to the text who can deliver from death I'm dying and I'm talking to you and newsflash you're dying too and there is only one there is only one who has the power to overcome death there's only one who has the power to overcome disease. There's only one who has the power to forgive, the authority to forgive sins, the power to remove the penalty of sin through his life and death and resurrection. There's only one, and we're going to see him again this morning. And we're going to see him not just with, not just with um, a casual glance, we're going to see him on display. We're going to see Jesus Christ, who is the risen Lord who is the authoritative one, who is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that a seed would come and would bless all nations. That's Jesus Christ. He sat on the mountain and he taught with authority that the people marveled at. And through this section, we've seen him repeatedly do acts that have only validated that authority. Jesus Christ stands in a class that is unrivaled. He is alone. He is supreme. And the supremacy of Jesus Christ must be at the forefront of our thinking when we are confronted with the reality of death. We have been in the context of one of the breaks that Matthew adds in this section on miracles. You remember this? We have three miracles. We started in chapter 8 with three miracles. And then we moved into a little uh, break paragraph about discipleship. From that, we had three more miracles, which carried us into chapter 9. And we had a second break that dealt with Matthew's calling and dealt with the Pharisees and their problems with Jesus and his methods and his philosophy of ministry. And then finally, we ended up with the disciples of John the Baptist having a problem with Jesus in the sense of his seeming disregard for their religious ritual. And right on the heels of that, we come now this morning to verse 18 of chapter 9. And we're going to carry all the way through to verse 34 this morning in our study time. So we pick up with verse 18. And you can read along with me. If you're new with us, I trust that you can get acclimated quickly and see the potency of these paragraphs as a whole. Verse 18. While Jesus was saying these things, while he was saying these things to them, that is, John the Baptist's disciples. Behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away. 
For the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. When the crowd had been put aside, put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl rose. And the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him and said to them, and he said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened and Jesus sternly warned them. See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke and the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. Verse 34 concludes this section, but the Pharisees, the Pharisees said he cast out demons by the prince of demons. The Pharisees said he cast out demons by the prince or by the power of the prince of demons. Now, what is unique about these final miracles that are given to us here? And really, if we count them up in these paragraphs, it's the final four miracles And yet one of those is tucked into another miracle account. So we have a miracle within a miracle. And we're going to look today and we're going to put these in three groupings. But these three categories of miracles that are represented as the primary miracles of this final section stand out as unique. Because if you remember from our reading, Jesus will heal the dead. He will cause the blind to see and he will cause the mute to speak. You know why that is important? You know why Matthew includes that here? And Matthew's obvious goal is to prove to you beyond a shadow of a doubt to remove any excuse from you in saying that Jesus is not the Messiah. Why would Matthew include these final three in this order at this point? Because these three, according to Isaiah chapter 35, verses 4 through 6, represent the fulfillment of specifically messianic prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 35, the prophet declares that God will return to Israel. There will be a blessing. The Messiah will come. And when the Messiah comes, they will see the lame walk. They will see the blind receive sight. And they will witness those who cannot speak and those who cannot hear receiving speech and hearing. These are clearly outlining the messianic ministry, the prophetic fulfillment that is the messianic ministry of Jesus. In fact, Jesus is going to come back to this issue in just a few chapters when John the Baptist will send some more people and messengers will come to Jesus and ask if he is in fact the Messiah. John the Baptist is in prison. He's probably a little frustrated with the pace of this messianic kingdom coming about. There he is in his cell. He sends the messengers and says, go to Jesus and find out if he is the promised one. And Jesus responds by saying, go back, go back to John the Baptist and tell him what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have the good news preached to them. These final three with the fourth one sandwiched into that first these final four miracles are the final validation that Matthew will use in this section to clearly identify the authority of Jesus not just in word at the Sermon on the Mount but in action in his ministry life this will be our goal this morning to unpack these a little bit we won't have time to go deeply into each one of them but I trust the clear emphasis will come off of the page And God's spirit will use it in your life to change you to be more conformed to the image of your savior and his son this morning. So let's jump into these miracles and let's begin with verse 18. And number one, Jesus is seen here as having authority to raise the dead. Jesus has authority to raise the dead. And the miracle within the miracle proves that he is bearing authority over disease as well. But the main emphasis is his authority to raise the dead. Matthew records, while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died, 
but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Now, if you are a careful Bible student or if you have a Bible that helps you be a careful Bible student in front of you right now, you may have other passages that stand as the parallels to this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the parallel Gospels. They provide uh, a distinct perspective on the same events of Christ's life. And so in Mark chapter 5 and in Luke chapter 8, we find this same event taking place. And we find incredible amount of detail in those parallel accounts that we don't find here. And you remember why? Because Matthew is not so much concerned about every detail of the event. He's concerned about the point of the event. And so we find out elsewhere that this is Jairus. And Jairus is not just any ruler. He's the leader of the synagogue in this city. So here Jesus is reclining in Matthew's house. He's interacted with the Pharisees. He's interacted with the Baptists who have come to accuse. And now he is interacting with Jairus. And Jairus comes as a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? He's the leader of the synagogue. This is the spiritual leader of this community. And he comes and he bows before Jesus in respect. And he declares that his daughter has just died. Now, you remember, right, there was a process to this happening. In fact, Jarius first comes and says, my daughter's sick. And then he sends messengers later and communicates to Jesus that she's gone. And and here we see that he actually came in person to Jesus and knelt before him and said, she's dead. But if you'll come, if you'll come and touch her, she will be healed. She can live if you'll give her life. Matthew abbreviates this because his goal is to hammer the theme of the overwhelming evidence that Jesus is the powerful and authoritative Messiah. So we pick up in this Cliff Notes version of this account. And Matthew remembers specifically, think about it, Matthew's recording an event that took place in his house. So there he is, he's at the table, he sees Jesus corresponding to Jairus, And Jesus gets up and goes and Matthew and the other disciples get up and follow behind Jesus and they go to Jairus's house. And for some reason, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, under the direction of the Holy Spirit and in Matthew's mindset, as he writes this, he interjects this account right in the middle of this narrative about Jairus, because when they get up and they walk out, surely there's a crowd of people outside of the house. They've been wanting to hear Jesus and be near Jesus. And one of those people is a precious lady who has been struggling with a hemorrhaging for the the entirety of her life. This is her condition. This is a pattern for her. We're so far removed from Jewish culture. But you remember the lepers? You remember the leprous men? Remember how they were outcasts because anybody who came in contact with someone with leprosy was considered unclean. They could not come to the synagogue. They could not come and bring sacrifices to the temple. This lady fit into that category of people. She was outcast because of her hemorrhaging, because of the bleeding that was consistent from her womb. She could not interact in a normal lifestyle. Anyone who came in contact with her physically was considered unclean. And this is reckless behavior on this sweet lady's part. She is reckless in her attempt. Here in the middle of a crowd, she is ceremonially defiling everybody who's there. And she's bumping into people and she's touching people because she's desperate. She can see him. He's in front of her and he's moving away and she's got to get to Jesus. And she's confident, she's confident that the authority of Jesus is such that if she simply touches his clothes, he can heal her. And right here in the middle of one miraculous event that will bring life to a dead body, we find this precious story. We find this account that only heightens our awareness that Jesus is the authoritative promised one. Notice what takes place. She comes and she tries to touch the fringe of his garment. That would have been the four tassels that all Jewish males had off of their main robe, right? You remember this from the Old Testament as you've been doing your Leviticus reading and uh, hunkering down in Leviticus for your devotional time. You'll remember that those Jewish men had four tassels. They were to remind them to live in obedience to the word of God. 
she's grasping for one of those tassels. Jesus, being a Jewish male, he's wearing, he's wearing those tassels. And she's trying to grab one of those tassels. And she thinks to herself and says to herself, if I just touch it, I'm going to be well. That's the kind of authority and power she believed existed in the person of Jesus Christ. And guess what? She was right. The other gospel writers fill in the story a little bit for us. She comes and she grabs his cloak and he feels power go out from him. This is a this is a another mysterious passage that we don't grasp in the incarnation. Here's Jesus. Philippians chapter two says that he is he is not considered his place, his priority as the second person of the Trinity, something to be grasped. But he emptied himself and humbled himself, becoming in the form of man. And so here's the humanity of Christ put on display. The second person of the Trinity, eternally powerful, the one who created the universe in a word. He has set aside his prerogative, his right to his power. And as the Spirit guides and directs him, he is healing, he is touching, he is restoring. And in this case, he does so even without his own knowledge. In fact, he asks, who touched me? Probably to find a very excited face. A somewhat scared face because she's just been called out in a crowd. This is one who is aware of her uncleanness. And Jesus looks at her and he speaks directly to this lady. He says in verse 22, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And the instantly here is speaking of her instantly in the moment, right in the moment in which she came to Jesus and touched him, she was made well. So there's that little interjection. Jesus is laying at the table. He's dealing with confrontation. He's dealing with discipleship and what that means right in the home of one who has just left his entire life behind to follow him. Jairus comes. Jairus is a leader of the leaders. He's a religious leader. He's a Jewish leader. He comes and says, my daughter is dead. You've waited too long, but if you'll come and touch her, I know she can be healed. Jesus gets up and follows after Jairus to go to his home. And this event takes place. So here we find the miracle within the miracle. And verse 23 in classic Matthew way, totally understated. Matthew just picks back up on his account as if nothing happened. And Jesus is just... Coming to the ruler's house. Shows up. Now he's in Jairus' home. And when he comes into Jairus' courtyard, coming into the entrance of his home, notice what we find in verse 23. Jesus sees a couple of things that just don't resonate with us. At least they don't resonate with our culture. What are the two things that you see that Jesus notices right away in the, in the home of Jairus? He notices flute players... And he notices a crowd of people causing a commotion. And that seems kind of vague to us. I mean, I don't know what your home life was like, but I grew up with a sister who was very, very musically gifted. <clears throat> In contrast to her brother. And so, because my parents were concerned that we'd be well-rounded in our development, I had to play an instrument. Remember the contrast here, okay? My sister is a child prodigy pianist and picks up the flute on the side just to uh, just to do it. And she becomes excellent with it. Well, I figure if I have to play an instrument, it's going to be one that's fun to play. So I get the guitar and that's what I'm going to play. And my sister and I would have practice times that we had to play in the evening or whatever the case was. And anyway, all that to say, flute players are not a positive connotation in my mind. OK, I competed with a flute and I would go slam the door to her room and go play my guitar as loudly as I possibly could to try to drown out the flute player. So what are the flute players here? Well, they're totally not classical flute musicians. They're not, and pardon me if you play the flute, it's a beautiful instrument. And done with the heart can bring worship and honor to God, okay? If you play the flute, you don't get this either because these are professionals, but they're not professionals who play for the entertainment of those who pay them. These are professionals who come to play for the morning. And guess what? The crowd of people that is making a commotion, they're professionals too. They got paid to be there. They're paid by the family that suffered the loss of death. They're paid to come and mourn. When was the last time you had a funeral and you had to go out and check the classified ads to get your mourners there? 
right? We just don't understand this. And yet this was totally Jewish culture. In fact, Jewish ritual was that you needed to have two flute players hired and you need to have at least one mourner hired at your funeral, which was a long process. These people were not mourning like we mourn in American culture where we have a funeral service. Maybe we even have a wake in the Northeast. They call it a wake or a viewing. And we come and we talk in hushed tones and, and we're respectful with our quietness and we get the best clothes we own out and go and, and, and we honor those who have passed. This is a Jewish funeral and the flute players are playing dissonant music and the professional mourners are ripping clothes and screaming and beating their chest and throwing dirt on their heads and it is a massive commotion. And Jesus shows up in this case. He knows exactly what he's there for. He knows exactly what he's about to do. And he says, get out. Get out of the house. I have work to do here. She's not dead. You don't need to be here. She's just sleeping. Now, notice, pick back up in verse 24. We find Jesus saying, go away. The girl's not dead, but sleeping. And and we kind of empathize with these people. They're the ones who are the professionals. They know the situation and they find this rather humorous. And so they laugh at our Lord. They laugh at him because he was too late to get here and heal her. And they laugh at him because now he's here and he's so self-important that he thinks he knows she's not even dead. And yet Jesus means something entirely different. The situation is not as it appears. She's simply sleeping and the Messiah is here and he will raise her back. She will be alive again. And when the crowd gets put outside, the parallel gospels remind us that five people are in there to witness this event. Jesus goes in where the little girl is laid and took her by the hand and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all the district. That's it. Matthew doesn't have anything else to say. Jesus went in, grabbed her by the hand. The girl was alive. End of story. Everybody knew it in the area. Now, why is Matthew so, so brief in this account? Because Matthew's goal is not so much for us to mine the depths of this event as it is to marvel at the centerpiece of this event. This event is all about you and I being overwhelmed with who Jesus is. Matthew goes on to the second of these accounts. Jesus has authority to raise the dead and Jesus has authority to give sight to the blind. We're getting more brief now. They go from this home and two blind men are walking behind them, crying out to Jesus, have mercy on us. And they're calling him a very specific name. Matthew doesn't want to leave this out because this fits perfectly within his theme. They're calling him the son of David. They're calling him the Messiah. They're calling him what Matthew 1 clearly gave to us in the genealogy. They're saying he's the descendant of David. He's the promised seed that will sit again on the throne, that will be the blessing to God's people, that will restore Israel, that will bless the nations. This is the one. And these blind men, without ever laying eyes on him, without ever seeing him, they are confident that they're walking behind the son of David. What words of faith, believing an unseen truth. Jesus responds to these men in an interesting fashion. Remember the scenario, right? They've left the house. They've just, the disciples have just witnessed the raising of a dead person. And they've got these two blind guys behind them. And they're just screaming behind Jesus, have mercy on us. And they're calling him the son of David. A very messianic title. And Jesus responds interestingly to this cry from them. Notice what he says to them in verse 28. When he entered the house, we don't know whose house this is that he's in. It may be Matthew's. He may have come back to Matthew's home after going and visiting Jairus' house. It may be Peter's home. We're not sure. But when he comes into the house, the blind men come there inside the house to him. And Jesus says to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Because you see, Matthew wants us to be aware that the issue at stake here is those who 
are aware of who Jesus is and then respond rightly to it, receive the blessing from the authoritative Messiah. Jesus says, do you really believe? Do you believe that I can do what you're asking me to do? And these men with simple words just say, yes. Who knows what their emotion was like at this point? They're this close. They're this close to receiving their sight. And they call him master. Yes, master. Verse 29, Jesus says, according to or on account of your faith. According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes are opened. End of story. Just that simple. Jesus touches them. And their eyes are opened. And blind men see. Blind men who were aware that he was the son of David and who believed that his authority was such that he could heal them in a moment. Now we find one of the most perplexing situations in our New Testament in verse 30. Plowing through this text, we find ourselves in verse 30 confused. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. Now, sternly warned does not get what's going on here. Because this is as close to scolding and in-your-face discussion as Jesus ever gets. The Greek word here is an emphatic word with an emphasis extra added on. So it's not a casual, hey guys, keep it under your hats what just happened here. Now that's, not the, that's not the attitude in which this is spoken. This is sternly warning, do not tell people what took place today. And we find that, at least I find that, in casual reading to be something, something of a confusion. Why would Jesus tell them not to spread the information about their sight being received from him? Seems that the best understanding is that Jesus was concerned that there would be distraction and that there would be even roadblocks to him fulfilling his purpose, his messianic purpose, if his fame grew at such a rate that the people crowded him and forced him or attempted to force him to be their earthly Messiah. What they understood was a political king who would come and do away with Rome. And what he desired not to happen was for more and more people to rally in a distraction from his, his clear calling from the Father. The Father's will had to be done and these men were to keep quiet about their miracle reception of sight for the sake of the kingdom purposes that Jesus had at his heart. Now, as confusing as that may be, there's no confusion about what we find in verse number 31. Jesus sternly warned them in verse 30 and in 31 we see, but they went away and spread his fame through all that district. Now, don't you just want to smile at that? I mean, come on, these guys, they've been blind. They receive their sight and you just kind of find your heart attaching to them like, OK, I get it. I mean, I totally get this. They could not they could not do what they were told to do. So they went out and they didn't just go out and tell their family members. They didn't go out and just communicate to those who were directly associated. With their circumstances. They went out with the bullhorn and they declared it as high and as loud as they could what had taken place in their lives. And we just kind of smile and go, that's, that's understandable. And I understand that. But let's be clear. Verse 31 is disobedience. It really is. Now, we, we have a warm spot for this disobedience because it's the kind of disobedience that comes from being overwhelmed by what just took place in a miraculous blessing from God. And yet, this is disobedience. In fact, one commentator said, these men believed enough to come and receive the blessing, but they did not stay to learn obedience. Jesus was guarded in not inciting a, an upheaval, a ground-level rebellion that would try to overthrow the Roman government with him at its head. He wanted to accomplish the will of the Father, and these men stood really in their disobedience in opposition to that goal. So we find after this brief account and after we are seeing this, the fame of Jesus spread, that not only does he have the power over death, not only does he have the power 
to give sight to the blind. But finally, and most briefly, verse 32 through 34 declares to us that those who cannot speak will be given speech. And as they're going away from that house and those blind men, behold, a demon oppressed man who was mute. Grateful for the ESV changed up the translation. Maybe you have an older modern translation and the word is still translated dumb. I think we need to get away from that. They were not dumb as in the cultural sense of dumb. They were mute or he was mute rather. And Jesus notices right off the bat in verse 32 that this mute mute man was mute because he was demon oppressed. And so Jesus cast out the demon and the man's speech is restored and the crowds marvel and they say, never has anything like this been seen in Israel. This is at a new level. Jesus has authority to raise the dead. Jesus has authority to give sight to the blind. And Jesus has authority to give speech to the mute. But we find really the crux of all of this study in verse number 34. While the crowds were marveling, while they were amazed, and don't read too much into marveling, okay? This is not necessarily revival. These same crowds that marvel, will also be at the triumphal entry, which we talked a little bit about in Sunday school. These same crowds will also be right there around Pilate's porch. Okay, They marvel because they had never seen anything like this. But the Pharisees are not so impressed. Verse 34 describes the Pharisees' response. They now have come up with a way to ignore the power and authority of Jesus. They claim... He cast out demons by the prince of demons. This is going to become the official Pharisee position on Jesus. This is going to be the way that when you read about Jesus doing miracles and you think to yourself, how in the world could anybody be in the presence of these these miracles and not respond in faith and in repentance? I mean, how could anybody Be blinded to the point of not... Well, this is the position that was taken. The Pharisees are so hardened and so arrogant and so self-righteous and so proud that this one that came from Nazareth could not be the Messiah. In fact, we're convinced that he's doing what he's doing because he's actually a servant of the prince of demons. He's a servant of Beelzebub. He's a servant of Satan. This would be their position. And we'll come back to this again and again in Matthew. The Pharisees concluded that Jesus was in cohorts with the demons that he cast out. And therefore, his giving speech to the mute man, his giving blindness to the blind men, and his giving life to Jairus' daughter is wiped off. It's no effect. It has no bearing on their lives. And this morning, we're confronted with the exact same discussion. We are in the presence of the living word revealing the majesty of the son, revealing the authority and the power of the Messiah, Jesus from Nazareth. And we are left with the same question. What will we do with Jesus? We are dying. He's the only one who provides an opportunity for eternal life. He's the only one who bears this power and authority. How will we respond to Jesus? Will we discard him? Will we discredit him? Will we explain it away so that it's not what it seems? Or will we bow our hearts in repentance, turning from our own self-righteousness, our own effort and our own sin and embrace Jesus Christ as a substitute for us at the cross? The simple point of Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 34, is that Jesus claimed to be the promised Messiah and his miraculous power validates that claim. But that has major ramifications on me and on you this morning if you're in Christ. And it has major ramifications on you this morning if you're not in Christ. If you're here and you're an unbeliever. If you're here and you're lost in your sin. The reality that Matthew 9 proves that Jesus is the Messiah has everything to do about our lives today. This is as relevant as it gets. 
This is as critical to our existence as God's people. This is critical to you, unbeliever, to rightly relate to the Father who will judge you and who is holy and perfect and who demands that you are perfect as well. This has everything to do with you. So let's finish out our time considering how this affects us. What are some other observations that come clearly from this text and from this entire section in Matthew chapter 8 and Matthew chapter 9? Let me consider a few things with you. Number one, the quality of faith is wrapped up in its object, not the quantity that the faithful one can muster. Make sense? The quality of faith is wrapped up in its object, not the quantity that the believer can muster. So what we see repeatedly through this is a theme of your faith has made you well. Your faith results in your forgiveness. Your faith is centered in the right place, therefore you get sight. We see faith and a response to faith consistently through this section, and yet we need to be We need to be careful in the way we think. We need to be careful in the way we study. Because the sufficiency of those those faithful, those who displayed this faith, was not wrapped up in their ability to muster up faith. The quality of their faith that resulted in their healing or in their salvation, their forgiveness, the, the quality is wrapped up in the object. It's the one in whom they place their faith. It's the one who they believe. So we are not left this morning with some vague, fuzzy thought that we are people of faith. And if we go from here and live lives that that have faith at their center, that we will somehow be better off than those who are not people of faith. No, this morning we're gathered together and with the main point of this passage bearing down on us, We are people of Christ. He is the center of our faith. He is the quality of our faith. Without Christ, our faith is useless. Without Christ as represented and revealed in Scripture, our faith is useless. Without a Christ who died and suffered on our behalf and was raised the third day to eternal life, we are, of most men, to be pitied. So the quality of faith is in its object. That leads to a very specific application for us. Those who respond with a desire to see their faith strengthened and deepened. And maybe you're in this category this morning. Maybe you with me, we desire to see our faith in Jesus Christ. More sure, more grounded, more enduring stronger, deeper, whatever our descriptive term is. And you say, well, how will I see my faith strengthened? How will I see my faith solidified so that when when the tempter comes and when deception is is upon me, and when trial comes, I will stand the test. I will I'll be faithful. Well, if the quality of our faith is wrapped up in the object of our faith, then the depth and the strength of our faith is wrapped up in the clarity with which we see that object. You understand the clarity with which you see Jesus Christ, the clarity with which you understand his power and his majesty, the clarity with which you see the authority that he puts on display, the 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 clarity with which you see Jesus is directly correlated to your faith and the strengthening of your faith. You say, wow, that person has incredible faith in Christ. That person has an incredibly clear view of Christ. And this morning, you and I, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can have our minds renewed so that we do not see Christ as the great prophet. We don't see Christ as a good teacher. We don't even see Christ as just the one who came and gave me forgiveness. We see Christ as the Messiah, as the second person of the Trinity, as the promised one, as the God-man, as the all-powerful one. As the creator, sustainer of the universe. How could we not? How could we not trust him? He is absolutely trustworthy. If we see him 
in all of His glory revealed in the pages of our Scriptures. So the depth of our faith or the strength of our faith is directly connected to the clarity with which we see the object of our faith. Now, what else is critical from this by way of application for us? Unbeliever, this morning, on the pages of your Bible, I trust that's in front of you, even in your hearing, the words that have been read from Matthew chapter 9 reveal the only means of salvation for you. You were created by a God who is without sin and who demands from His creation sinless perfection to be in His presence. You have sinned. You were born as a child of Adam, the first human. You were born in sin and you are hopelessly lost apart from someone who would step in, who could stand in for you who could take your punishment and then not only take your punishment, but provide a righteous, a righteous credit to your account. You are permanently and totally indebted to the father. You must be punished for your sin. You must be punished. And the punishment is death. Therefore, the only hope for you is someone else to die your death and to credit to your account righteousness for you. You can't earn it. You couldn't do enough to muster up good works to somehow do away with your guilt. There's no scale in heaven with your name on it. What you have heard and seen in Matthew chapter 9 is the only means of that salvation. Jesus Christ came to earth as the perfect Lamb of God. He then suffered after living in perfect obedience. He suffered and died on behalf of sinners who believe. And he was raised from the dead in victory over life. And he provides eternal life. Therefore, if you'll place your confidence in him and in him alone, here's the unbelievable news, unbeliever. This is this is ridiculous. God will forgive you. The Holy One will wipe away your guilt. He will substitute the sacrifice of his son for your death and he will credit to your account his perfect obedience and you will receive eternal life. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. Unbeliever, this morning, if you will turn from yourself and follow Christ, if you will repent and believe, if you'll Leave behind the old way of earning your merit towards God. If you'll leave behind your own effort and place your confidence solely in what you cannot see, which is the finished work of Christ, it will be your day of salvation. Believer, you must grow more committed. I must grow more committed to progressive turning and trusting strengthening of the faith because we are more acquainted, better acquainted with the Christ of our scriptures, the one who has saved us. My prayer this morning from Matthew chapters eight and nine, really, because we're coming to the end of a major section. We're going to see a transition next next week. My prayer is that the Lord would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the Savior. Eyes to see Jesus from Nazareth was and is the Messiah of God. My prayer is that he would grant us hearts that are more consumed with the son, more consumed with Jesus, more consumed with the reality of his person and work so that we might be transformed and bear the image of our savior so that we would be a testimony to the world around us. If we are to worship him appropriately, We must see him clearly. And if we are to speak for him publicly, we must know him privately. Our devotion must be centered. Our faith must be centered on none other than Jesus Christ. He is the one who bears all authority in word. And he bears all authority in action. He's the validated one. He's the promised one. And the question for us this morning is, how will we respond to the one? Father, thank you for this text.
Thank you for this entire morning. What a blessing it has been to come before you together to speak to you in prayer, to come boldly into your throne room because of our high priest who has been the sacrifice that ends all sacrifices, who is at your right hand, who has completed the work. It's been a privilege and a joy to be with you and in your presence. It's been a joy to sing together and lift our hearts up in praise to you. It's been a joy to give out of abundance and to give with joy to your kingdom work, anticipating your blessing. It's been a joy to hear your word. Our hearts resonate with your word. And it has been a privilege and a joy to study your word. And we confess here at the end of our gathering, we confess that we are dying men and women together with other dying men and women. And only one, only one has the power and the authority to overcome death. We confess Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is our Savior. He is our Master. We confess that we would turn again at a moment's notice and give it all away for the privilege and joy of being kingdom citizens, of being His people. We are of all people most blessed because we know You through the person and work of Your Son. And we are comforted, we are guided, we are helped, and we are taught by the Spirit who is here in His absence. Take this text and change us for Your glory. Deepen our faith, strengthen our faith, so that in times of trial, we might stand firm in our confidence in Your sovereign goodness. In times of blessing, we might be quick to turn back praise and adoration to You, the giver of every good gift. And through the mundane of life, we might be able to live lives that are worship to you. Use this week, Father, in our lives as an opportunity to bring you honor. May we be more about you this week than we have been in previous weeks. May Grace Church be a gathering that is centered on Christ so that it is effective as it scatters to share the good news of the faithful promised one. We ask for these things because we are confident that they are in keeping with your desire, your will for us. And so we ask them in faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ.